Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Baez could not care. Yeah, Baez could not care less. I always, I always get that mixed up. Is it he couldn't care less or he could care less? He could not care less. Right. He was at the maximum capacity for not caring. That's <laughs> yes. what you're saying. That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Fias is like, no way, we're doing this, we're fighting. Because Fias reasons he needs to do the battle. Yeah, he's just like, let's just let's just see where it goes. One more day. That's it. Right. He could not care less once again. <laughs> What's up, Union Men or Northmen, whatever you prefer. This is Steven with another episode of Ontology, and Ryan's here today uh, on the line with me. We're going to be reviewing The Heroes by Joe Abercrombie. So what's going on, Ryan? Not much. It's good to be back. It's good to talk about another Joe Abercrombie novel. Yeah, these ones are, these ones are always something, I guess is the the best way to put it. There's a lot that uh, goes on in these books. Yeah, nothing really takes place quite like you'd expect, and it's definitely not your cliche fantasy novels. Yeah, so The Heroes is one of the standalone books after the original First Law trilogy. It ties in a lot with the original trilogy and a lot with uh, the, the previous standalone, Buster of Cold. So you really need to read those ones first before you jump into this one. This is the fifth overall book in the First Law universe, and then there's another standalone. And there's some short stories, and then there's the beginning of another trilogy. So we're kind of like right smack dab in the middle of, of the First Law world here with this one. Yeah, I was a little bit surprised by how much... I mean, I understood that the first trilogy is kind of a cohesive uh, series, and then the next trilogy is standalone books. But I thought the stories wouldn't be connected at all. That was just my expectation going into it. And I was pretty surprised... Um, there is quite a bit of events or mentions that go back to Best Served Cold. So it's definitely important to read that one first before you read The Heroes. Yeah, and I was pleasantly surprised as well because I really like these larger worlds that are kind of all tied in together. I think it's fun when you get those Easter eggs and those moments where you're like, oh, that's this, and now I see why it was important. So those types of things are really fun. Yeah, I agree. So we're going to, I guess kind of talk through some of the plot here we'll do some spoilers before we go too far let me just mention if you like what we're doing at phantology check us out at phantology books uh join our discord and chat with us or or check us out on patreon our website www.phantologybooks.com has everything you might uh, be looking for from our channel so uh so check us out there and we, we've covered a lot of series we're trying to uh bust through more it's it there's a ton of books on our list to do, but we are we are going as quickly um, and with as much quality as we can to cover all of our favorite series here. I would just like to apologize in advance if my camera falls to my falls to the desk. I don't have a webcam yet, so it is probably going to happen at least once during this podcast that my camera, which is sitting on top of my monitor, leaning precariously, is going to crash to the desk. At least I don't see your cats in the background, so hopefully they don't knock it over. Yeah, well, one of them is sleeping in this chair right next to me, uh, which is my wife's chair that she sits at, and cats kind of claimed it as the other. 
as its own. And then my other cat is sleeping over in the back there. So they are both asleep. This is nap time for them. So hopefully they won't be up to their normal mischief. So hopefully you don't get too excited as we review and wake them up. Yeah, exactly. All right. So if you're watching on YouTube, watch for the cats. Yeah. Watch, watch closely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the heroes, one kind of a quick comparison that I would make for this book is it's kind of like the last Jedi in the uh, in the most recent Star Wars trilogy, not comparing to quality at all, because there's a pretty hot button debate on um, the last Jedi. I'm on the side of I didn't really like it quite as much. And the heroes was a really good book. So I'm not even making that comparison. But I'm comparing in terms of the last Jedi was unique from other Star Wars movies, in that it was a very contained story. It seemed like the whole thing happened in like a day or two. If I'm uh, if I'm correct there, and the heroes very much the same. The whole thing happens over the course of what three four days, and compared to the sprawling events of the previous books, that is very different. So that's my comparison to the Star Wars universe. I don't know, Ryan. What do you what do you think? Am I on to something there? Well, I enjoyed Last Jedi, so that is um, a bit different, and I enjoyed the heroes as well. I. Did not make that connection whatsoever when um, I was reading it. And I only saw The Last Jedi once, so I can't, I'm not sure about the timeline there. So now nah, I can't analyze your comparison very well there. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, let us know on Discord what you think of that one. But I, it is worth mentioning, right, that The Heroes is over a shorter time period than what you might expect yeah. from previous books. So that is very different. Um, you do see some larger events with Baez being directly involved, but for the most part, this is a story about a self-contained war. And one of the themes throughout is that war is pointless. What are we doing fighting each other? The whole thing basically happens. And then when you get to the end, you're like, what was the point of all of that? All these guys went back to the mud for pretty much nothing. And I think that's a pretty interesting theme. Isn't it Baez who says throughout the book that war is just a beginning to, to talking, something along those lines? I know he says something like war is great because it kind of weeds out uh, some people and gets us down to the cream of the crop and it, it advances my scheme. So Baez, yeah, he does not care about individual lives at all. And he's just trying to egg this war on for his own schemes. And he's, he's an incredibly heartless guy. Yeah, and you can kind of see that with his interaction with other people, his blatant disregard for life. And even when the generals kind of want to stop the battles later on, he's just like, well, I think we should keep on fighting. Yeah, he's a he's a pretty good villain. We're doing a, a competition for top three villains right now in the month of June. So check out that. Uh, we're, we're doing that on Twitter. So every day there will be another Twitter poll. We, If you're listening by now, I think we're kind of safe to say we kind of all know that Baez is somewhat of a villain but we did not allow him as a villain in the Twitter competition because that would have been too much of a spoiler for the original trilogy, but he is a very good villain and really kind of like the main villain of the first law universe that I know about yet so far, at least. Yeah. I think a lot of us would have picked him in our top five if we had been able to. So that, yeah, that says a lot about his character and Joe Abercrombie for writing him. Yeah. Once again, the characters continue to be very strong components of the writing I really like the inner dialogue that you get for some characters. I think uh, Goss especially has a really nice inner dialogue that makes you understand him as a character. And I think that's really... Joe Abercrombie does a lot of things well in his writing, but I think the character work and just 
understanding of how these guys tick is really fascinating. Yeah, you mentioned this in the Discord, Stephen, but it's a, a huge throwback uh, reminder when Gorst has his internal dialogue and he kind of mocks people in his uh, in his mind or his situation or whatever. It definitely reminds me of Glockta. Yeah, those two characters, I guess characters who start with G, are going to have good internal dialogues. We'll see if that carries along through future books. But yeah, I, I love I love the internal dialogue because it really makes you connect with the guy. And I think like once you realize what's going on inside someone's head, you can't help to get behind them a little bit, even though once you really start to understand what's going on in Goss' head, maybe you don't get behind him quite as much. He's an interesting guy. Yeah. He's also another good example of a character with significant strengths and also significant flaws, which is one of Joe Abercrombie's strengths as an author, is writing those types of characters. Yeah, they, they seem very human. There's no real knight in shining armor. There actually is one knight in shining armor, but it doesn't work out very well for him because of his flaws. And we'll talk about that more when we actually get into the plot. So before we do the plot, let's do our content warning. So if you've read your Abercrombie, you probably know how this is going to go. But uh, this is a, a fairly high content warning. There is there's a lot of swearing. There's a lot of violence. There is some sexual stuff as well, although not quite as much in this book, since we're mostly focused on the battle. But um, definitely, I mean, he kind of leans into that grimdark style, which you probably already know having read previous Abercrombie books. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. There's not really any not safe for work uh, scenes that take place. I mean, I guess maybe a, a little bit, but it's it's not as bad as uh, Best Served Cold, I would say. So if you're able to stomach that book, then you should be able to stomach this book. Yeah, this one's all about the war. So most of the content is going to be around the violence. And a lot of people are killed in, I mean, pretty brutal ways, we'll say. I mean, not like torturous ways, but they're definitely done in. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the brutalities of war. So getting into the plot then, um, this is eight years since Last Argument of Kings. So we see a lot of characters from the original trilogy and we kind of see how they've progressed, but we don't get a whole lot of backstory. We're just kind of like picking up um, right in the middle of the action and we're going into this fight. So there are a few point of view characters. The first one we're introduced to is Kerndon Krah. This guy kind of reminds me of the Dogman in that he's a Northman that is kind of in a leadership position, but he's also not a big fan of war. A lot of the Northmen are. So he's kind of an older guy and he's seen his share of things and he's turned off from it, but this is all he knows. So here he is fighting and we're about to start fighting with the Union and never really gives an explicit reason why the war is actually happening. Other than like King Jazal is unhappy with the way the Black Dao has been doing things. And I think this lack of reason for why the war is happening really kind of like leans into this idea of, of war is pointless. And the whole conflict is over nothing, which I think is a pretty interesting idea that is pretty true, I think, for a lot of conflicts. And with Krav, we just get this kind of introduction to the setting and what's going on. And he has this standoff with Hardbread, who is another Northman who's on the Union side. So some of the Northmen are on the Union side, like the Dogman, who we see as well. And the setting that we go to first is on the top of this hill. The hill is called the Heroes, so that leads, that leads its name to the title of the book. So these titular stones are the, the Hero Stones are just on top of this big hill. It's like a strategic 
uh, strategic point for the battle that we're going to see. And it's near this village called Osrung in this valley. And this is our introduction to the conflict. So Ryan, any comments on that kind of intro to the book? Yeah, so I, I feel like throughout this, the standalone trilogy, the world is changing significantly with the advancement of industry and technology. And so you kind of have the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things is kind of coming in. And with uh, Craw and Hardbread, I really like their relationship because it gives you a good sense of what war I think traditionally it was like in the North in which there's a lot of honor. There's, there might not have been quite as much killing. I'm sure it was still pretty bloody, but these guys both have mutual respect. Sometimes you find yourselves on the same side of the battle. Other times you find yourselves on the other side of the battle. And despite that, they kind of find a humane way to treat each other in which they both give each other chances to surrender and retreat multiple times and they're negotiating with each other and there's definitely a lot of uh, respect between these two people and throughout the book uh, you see a lot of war being changed in new ways with the introduction of new technology and i think it catches a lot of people by surprise and some people are able to adapt to it well like Calder, and uh, some people aren't. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, I agree with you. I think that these guys are kind of the old guard for the North, and the North society is all built around constant war. And it's almost like you don't want your enemy to dislike you too much because in the next battle, they could easily be fighting on your side. So like you say, they have this mutual respect for each other because who knows, you know, next conflict, they're going to be on the same side, which they might be. I mean, at the end of the book, kind of jumping ahead here, uh, Hardbread comes back to Kra, and this is really a good uh, kind of mirror to the beginning. And Kra goes off with them to to fight again. I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I assume that we'll get more details as we go into the series more. But yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a really nice way to sum it up. Yeah, they're both. It, it's funny they're back and forth throughout, especially the first. I guess in the entire book, I, I really enjoyed their back and forth. So you mentioned Calder. Calder is the son of Bethod, the youngest son. Bethod was the guy who was really causing most of the conflict, the king of the north, if you will, in the first trilogy. Calder, you see him uh, somewhat. He kills uh, Foley the smallest or Foley the youngest. What's that guy's name? The weakest. Foley the weakest. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so he has him killed and he kind of uh, reflects upon that somewhat during this book and he's changed. You can see he's matured. Calder is not your typical Northman because he is not as bloodthirsty as the other guys, but he's very clever and he wants revenge on Black Dow for, uh, you know, for overthrowing his father. He has a wife that he loves who is pregnant and she is the daughter of Kal Ricci, who is one of Black Dow's like war chiefs. And so Calder is kind of cleverly trying to overthrow Black Dow, but at the same time, he's in a bad position because he's captured by him. He doesn't really have any leverage or power. And at the beginning of the book, he is summoned by Black Dow through Shivers. Shivers we saw quite a bit in Best Served Cold. And Shivers has not gone off on a, any better path than we would expect him to. From the end of Best Served Cold, he is a really hard, menacing guy now. He is like Black Dow's kind of knight in black armor, if you will. Like the dude who's going to do all the dirty work for you. People call him Black Dow's dog, which he doesn't like very much. That's going to be important for later on, is all we'll say. 
And yeah, Calder kind of starts to work on him and tells him, hey, you don't get enough respect. Shivers definitely has continued down the path of least resistance, which for him is just killing people and doing dirty work, which is probably mostly bad, bad things. And he, he talks to actually Kernan Craw towards, I think it's towards the beginning of the book. And this is something that he actually repeats in um, a, a later book, I believe, when he's talking to somebody. He asks Kernan Craw, well, you're a respectful guy. So uh, what what made you do it? And or how do you stick to that? And Kernan Craw responds, I forget what his response. And then he asks Shivers about it, or Shivers says, I tried that once. And sorry, I'm butchering this. Shivers says, I had a dream to be a better man once. And then Kernan Craw asks him what happened. And Shivers says, I woke up. Yeah, that's in the, that's in this book for sure. I remember that. Yeah, but but he actually he actually does say that again in Red Country. He repeats those same exact words. Mm, okay. So it just shows you how he thinks that a good person is kind of, I guess, a dream in this world that they don't, they shouldn't really exist uh, at all just because of, I guess, the way the world is. And he is not really changing his viewpoint at all. I think, I'm not sure if it was the same exact conversation, but there is, I think, my favorite line from this book that just made me kind of laugh because of the dark humor that Joe Harmony does a really great job of was Shivers was asked something about his eye because he lost his eye in Best Served Cold. And he said something like, someone asked him like, oh, did that change your perspective or like vision on life or something? And his response is, it halved it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. That was, that was a good line. There's yeah. a lot of good one-liners. And I, I really appreciate the wit that Joe Abercrombie has in his writing. And it's dark humor, but it's humor nonetheless. And I think it really kind of breaks things up uh, in a really nice way. Yeah, so going on past Calder, uh, our, our next main viewpoint character is Rummer Dan Gost, which we kind of talked about. So we saw him a bit in the first trilogy. He was the guy that Giselle was fighting against in the big tournament. And then we also saw him in Best of Cold, where he was a Kingsguard, Kingsguard, like a knight of the body, I think is what they call them. And he was disgraced after this whole debacle in Sapani where Jazal was put in danger because of a bunch of reasons that were central to the plot there in Best of Cold. But uh, Gost did a very poor job of defending him at the time. And so now he's been disgraced. He no longer has his, his position. And he is currently the Royal Observer of the War. And he's writing these florid letters back to the king about how fantastic the army is and how great things are going. But in reality, it's just a total mess. Uh, Gost himself has all kinds of inner demons because of his, one of the main things is his, his comically high-pitched voice. He's like a, a soprano voice almost. Like he, he, his voice does not match his menacing, you know, muscular, uh, manly frame, if you will. And that causes yeah. a, a bit of a problem. No one takes him seriously. Um, and so he's got all of these, you know, self-doubts and, and problems. Anyway, so that's kind of who, uh, who Gost is at this point. At the beginning of his storyline, he's meeting up with Lord Marshal Croy. Croy is the new head of all the armies. And Baez comes into this closed council meeting. They talk about how long this war is taking. Baez says, we got to push forward. This thing's got to be wrapped up. We're going to force them into a conflict. We're going to force Black Dow into a conflict. And I also want to field test this new invention that I've got. So that's going to happen. Looking forward to that a little bit at this point. And Gost also meets up, meets up with another character named Finry. Finry. Finry is our main female character in this book. She is married to Herod Dan Brock. 
And Brock is the son of the Brock who was a big time trader in Last Argument of Kings. This is the guy who tried to be the king. If I'm not mistaken, he lost the vote and Jazal became the king because of some plot reasons there. So this guy is, is somewhat of a disgraced uh, son of a traitor. He's got to kind of make his name for himself. He's a really nice guy, but he doesn't really match up with the tone of, of the book and with everyone else. So Finry is super clever. Uh, she kind of matches up with Calder most, to be honest. Is he who you were thinking of for the knight in shining, shining armor? No, no. I was talking about uh, J- J- Jarenhorn. Jaren oh, Javenhorn. Yeah. General J. <laughs> this is what I'm going to call him. Okay. So, yeah, so this is kind of how Goss begins, and this is how we get introduced into the Union side of the conflict. Yeah, so I, I think it's it was sort of a small scene in Best Served Cold where it's Shivers who's looking for Monza to save her. And so he's kind of he, he's going up to the king's chamber, and he comes across this guard who's a little bit in a drunken stupor or... I don't remember exactly. And uh, Shivers just kicks him down the stairs almost without a thought. And then uh, goes and saves Monza. And it's a little bit comical. And then you come to this book and you realize that small event has just totally shaped Gorst's total outlook in in this book. And he's he's almost just consumed by this driving force that everybody's laughing at him and he's just he's been shamed by this and he needs to get back in the good graces of the king and i think he's so angry about this past event that he's begun training daily in very rigorous settings to better himself to make sure that this kind of thing never happens to him again and that is partly i think why he might be a little bit bloodthirsty but maybe he's just a bloodthirsty person in general. I don't know. We definitely get that more at the very end when he has that final conversation with Finry. Uh, so let's not maybe jump too far ahead. But yeah, I think that is a good question. What is his true nature? Like, is he just super bloodthirsty or is this all to get back to his previous position? Yeah. So I would say at this point, you should refer to the maps and the heroes. The heroes has five different maps that kind of take you through the battle don't look at the final ones until you've got to that point because it displays the different movements of the troops but those maps are kind of hard to find they used to be on joe abercrombie's blog but i think his website changed or something and now they're hard to find anyway if you google the heroes maps on reddit you'll find our post where we posted them i think i'll also put them up on patreon in case you can't find them but those are really cool maps and, and, and at this point you you want to know where things are it'll really help you because it's it's happening on such a small scale and they talk about the movements of going over different bridges and attacking different areas that the maps really help. Yeah, I actually didn't use the maps when I listened to it, but I was a little bit confused as to the troop movements. Yeah, I think you missed out. I think I kind of got a, got wind that they existed about halfway through the book. And then um, it was nice to just see, you know, visually what I was listening to. It's kind of hard when I'm like reading or listening to a book at work, doing something else to uh, all think in my mind oh i wonder what's going on here but i'm doing something else and then i forget about it later so i don't really pull out a map and reference that single event Uh, so that's maybe a a small uh, shortcoming to the way that i consume this content i mean i would guess it's hard to listen to books at work period right well it depends on what you do yeah fair fair enough there are things i do at work that require a lot of thought and analysis and so i'm just 
I, I can't listen. I'll just zone out of the book and zone into my work. But if it's a task that's pretty repetitive, which a lot of people might have in their jobs, I think it's fine. Yeah, audiobooks are great for that. Side note, sidetrack there. Yeah, yeah, sidetrack. But let's get back to the book here. So now, uh, having got the Union side, we get the Northern side as they gear up for war. So Black Dow brings his chiefs in. His chiefs are Glamma Golden, Karam Ironhead, Rod Tenways, Scale, who is uh, Calder's brother, and Kal Ricci, who is Calder's father-in-law. And we have this menacing giant dude called Stranger come knocking, and he comes into the meeting as well. So Black Dow seems to be really well informed, and he seems pretty confident going into the battle. You see Shivers now uh, is sent over to join up with Craw and his dozen. This is like the little band of people that Craw leads. A lot of them are kind of filler, cannon fodder type characters, except for uh, Weirin, who is fun. He's got this giant sword, and he provides some comic relief. And we also get a few other side character point of views. So we've got a corporal named Tunny. He's getting some new recruits. Tunny is, he's kind of similar to Kron that he's turned off for more and he knows it's just like a necessary evil. And this is what he's doing with his life and he's accepted that. But he's got a pretty dour attitude and he's got some new recruits who are all like excited to go off to war. And he's like, you guys are idiots. Anyway, they take off under Jalen Horm, which I think is how you say that generally. Oh, Jalen Horm. Yes, and they go okay. off to start fighting. And then you get another, an- this kind of uh, mirror is Beck. Beck is a teenage boy who wants to prove his name. And he's a Northman, and he signs up at this uh, weapon drive thing that they're doing to get more recruits on the northern side. And he's going to sign up and get assigned under Craw. You'll get more of him later on. So we're gearing up for the battle. We're kind of going into things. And I really like all these different... Uh, point of views. I especially like the Tunny and Beck mirror points of view. Yeah, Tunny is a bit more of a veteran uh, who has become, I think, jaded with war, but has learned how to profit vastly off of it. And so that's kind of what he does. And whereas Beck is just a young recruit who has very uh, lofty ideals as to how war will be and how to actually be a man and so he's kind of acting his part. He wants to be a hero. And I think this is, from Beck's perspective, it tells, I think, one of the most important messages of this book, whether you want to believe it in real life or not. But the book is called The Heroes, which I think is a bit ironic because you have all these so-called heroes. And as you learn a little bit more about each of them, you learn that none of them are really heroes at all. I think you kind of learn that along with Beck as he goes through his experiences in this book. Yeah, the heroes is a great name. And like you said, very ironic because none of them are really heroes and there's really no point to this fight at all. Yeah. So next few other things that happen as we gear up, uh, Calder is attempted. He has an assassination attempt against him that he survives and he finds out it's ordered by Tenways, who is one of the other generals so calder is is on his watch here i guess not general but like northern chief and craw gets into the first engagement here he holds off the heroes the stones the big hill uh, he holds off against uh, hardbread one of his guys dies so this is actually fight against hardbread who is the guy who came in at the beginning of the book to barter with him and then you get a point of view from gust who is just incredibly dedicated to training getting ready for the fight uh, you get a point of view from Finry, who is hanging out with Elise Dan Brint, who is the wife of one of the other like 
minor generals, maybe a lieutenant or something. Uh, Brint is one of actually Jazal's original friends from the very beginning of the Blade itself. So kind of nice to see all these like different crossover characters. And yeah. you get introduced to Governor Mead. Governor Mead is one of the three main generals under Croy. So you have Mead, you have Jalen Horm, and you have Midrick are the three northern or the three Union generals, rather. And Jalen Horm now brings his guys up against the heroes. Craw retreats because the Union's attacking force and the Dozen is definitely not going to do anything about this. Uh, Dow is okay with this, surprisingly, because he has all this information from Ishri, who is a eater. She is one of the uh, the Gurkish agents. So you have this conflict, this larger conflict set up between Baez and the Gurkish and Ka- Karul, the prophet. So it's nice to also get that this idea that, okay, the battle's happening, but really the main people that care about or, or that are going to influence the action are just heads and shoulders above all the boots on the ground people. And then the final thing that happens as we get up to the first day is that Jalen Horm orders Ghost to go off with an order to have one of his battalions pass through a bog because he has determined that the bog might be a way that the northern people can, the northern uh, army can pass through and get on their flanks. But really it's like this impassable bog. I kind of remember like a maybe a scene from Lord of the Rings where they're in that uh, bog with all the dead people. The dead marshes. Yeah, the de- yeah, exactly. So it's like that type of thing, but maybe even worse. And Tunny is, of course, the one who's unfortunate enough to order to be ordered to go through the bog. And that's all the action leading up to the first day. Well, the Union soldiers, maybe this, maybe you'll get to this, but they they are kind of ambushed. So the, the North are actually using that bog to try and get through, right? I didn't get a sense of that. I got a sense that the bog was possible to go through, but they just got a scouting report that said, hey, this could be an issue. And so they went off to do it. The Union then becomes gets across and they get trapped on the other side. But I don't remember the Northerners actually crossing through and doing anything. Hmm. Okay. All right. Maybe I just misunderstood that part then. It is kind of funny that right as Tunney is about to get his cavalry back, like they get their horses and they're like, yeah, we're the cavalry crew. And then they're like, ah, actually, no, you're going to walk through the bog. <laughs> yeah, that, that is that is a funny thing. That's maybe a reality of war is that they're cavalry, but due to some sort of logistics error, they don't have their horses. So they're just uh, walking around without their horses. Um, and I think that's probably, I, I don't know, I've never been a soldier in a war, but I've read stories about how logistics can be a nightmare and soldiers don't get what they need. and. Uh, just another reality of war, which is kind of funny, it, which is presented, I guess, in a comical way by Abercrombie here. Yeah, the Union is incredibly disorganized. Croy seems to be a competent commander, but his three generals underneath him all have severe shortcomings. It's a very much a mirror of the first trilogy where you had the same thing, a pretty competent commander and these generals underneath who are always going back and forth and bickering and, and having their own... Uh, putting their own needs first. It's kind of funny because Croy was one of those people and now he's matured and he's the commander of the entire force. Oh, he was in the, in the first books in the first trilogy. He was one of the incompetent commanders. He was, so him and the other general who I don't remember his name offhand, the other general was like all the, the pompous guy and Croy was like the very much uh, regimented type force. And these two just hated each other. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I, I don't remember that. 
But yeah, Croy has now grown up to lead the entire force, and he's a pretty good commander, but yeah. he's got a lot of issues to deal with, and he can't deal with all of them. Yeah. So the first day of fighting happens. The entirety of the book happens over three different days. The first day kicks off with an initial battle kind of through the perspective of different casualties. This is probably my favorite chapter of the entire book just because of the structure. So you get these points of view from all these minor characters, and then they all die after a couple of mm-hmm. pages or maybe not even that long for some of them. And then it picks up to the point of view of whoever killed them. And then that person goes along and then they die and then it continues. Uh, ultimately, up until uh, up until Gost, who doesn't die, he pretty heroically actually defends his side, and he f- gets into a fight with Glamour Golden, who is one of the northern chiefs. So, Ryan, you remember this kind of structure, right? I don't think I've ever seen this structure of a chapter before, and I don't know if too many authors other than Joe you could really pull it off, but yeah. I thought it was brilliant. Definitely. It's, it's an awesome creative tool that he used here, and you can see how different differently people react to the battle whereas some people are you know hold the line i'm gonna do my job other people are fleeing in terror and then you finally get to gorse to despite wanting to die it doesn't die (laughs) which is in contrast to everybody else who whatever their motivations they they didn't want to die and they ended up dying maybe that's why he's such a great soldier he doesn't care if he dies or not could be or it could be his rigorous training. and Yeah, he spent his entire life so tra- training for this. But I, I agree. I think it's an awesome chapter. It also reminds me, I know there's a chapter in Last Argument of Kings where towards the end, it doesn't do this exactly, but it cuts from character to character. And it's like at the end of every character's point of view, they say something. And then it starts the next point of view with the character saying the same thing, but from a different meaning or something. And so it's just jumping back and forth. And these little structures that uh, Joe Abercrombie puts in are really cool. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't remember that. But this is all just kind of reinforcing how much, even though I read the original trilogy, maybe like a year and a half or two years ago, there's so so many small things that I don't remember whatsoever. Yeah, he's got a ton of layers and his writing is really, really fantastic. Very, very well done technically and creatively. So on the northern side, uh, Calder convinces Scale, his brother, to back down after they've won this battle, and they need to defend their ground. You get Tunny, who's going through the bog. <laughs> the bog just cracks me up. Anyway, yeah. uh, one of his recruits, uh, Kilge, I think is his name, gets sucked into the bog and dies. Like He's sucked into some quicksand. They try to save him. The dude panics. He gets sucked under, and they're like, okay, there he goes. And Tunny is upset, and you think he's upset because he's lost a recruit, but really he's upset because Kilch had all the brandy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah, he he's used to it, I think, at this point, maybe to losing new recruits. But that, that part cracked me up a little. Definitely a grimdark thing. <laughs> yeah, very much so. So they get across, and then they lie low, because now they're stuck on the other side, and the Northmen are there. So they're, they're in a terrible position. If this was Kaladin, he would have spent the next half of the book just lamenting how he couldn't have saved that soldier <laughs> oh yeah yeah kaladin would have had major issues with that very different genres here yeah so tunny sends one of his other dudes back uh what's this guy's name later legan he's got a weird name and tunny makes fun of his name through the whole book sends him back with the message so this guy has to go back through the bog again <laughs> oh man the bog anyways uh dow black dow is happy with what they've done for the day 
uh, but he warns Craw that Midrick and Mead are going to be coming the next day. Gosh, to drugs, uh, he drags Jalen Horm back to report to, to Croy because uh, General Jay has really messed it up here. And he tries to resign, but he's told, no, you know, get your guys ready. We're going to need you in a couple days. And then Red Beck, the, the young the teenage kid from the North, is annoyed that they didn't make it back in time. He's still kind of got this like romanticized feel for battle. But he gets a pretty rude awakening when he sees Shivers methodically kill uh, this Northman prisoner who's kind of belligerent to him. It's like stabs him a bunch of times and he bleeds out and Beck's kind of shocked. He's like, okay, I don't know if Beck has seen killing before, but I mean, this is going to continue to be a pretty rude awakening for him throughout the rest of the book. And then Finry, one more viewpoint, Finry uh, has an opportunity to speak with Baez. She pretends to like tea and she kind of gets into his good graces and impresses him a little bit. Calder urges the North, the Northmen to, to sue for peace, which is laughed down, does not go well. And then you get Gosk trying to uh, pursue Finry doesn't also doesn't go well. And Calder fails to get any of the chiefs on with his peace plan. So that's through the first day. So a little bit of a whirlwind there, but uh, Ryan, what stuck out to you from the first day from that recap? You know, as funny as this may seem, when I finished the first half of the book, I remember looking at how far I'd gotten through the book and not really thinking that much had happened. But recapping it, you know, you realize just all of the small events that take place in this one battle. Some authors uh, finish a battle in a chapter, whereas in this uh, single book, Joe Abercrombie is taking on just one single battle and it's set up the actual events that take place a lot of the strategy and then the consequences from the results of the battle at the end of the book and i think that's good to maybe deliver his message i say his message but this is really just the message that i interpreted from the series is that a lot of war is pointless and a lot of people who you might put up on a pedestal they have their serious flaws uh, one way or the other and heroes aren't necessarily what you think they are which i kind of find to be pretty true to life i mean bad things happen to good people people die for really you know hard to explain reasons and life is very much imperfect and while grimdark kind of takes that to the next level by being hyper realistic i connected with a lot of some of a lot of these themes were seem to you know ring true for events that I see in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that was more of an overarching perspective, I guess, at least from the first half of the book, rather than single events. I think I've talked about most of the events as they've happened. So going into day two, so Kra wakes up to find one of his soldiers, one of his dozen, has died. Unfortunately, Finry wakes up to her foolish husband, who she's trying her best to help out. Tunny wakes up to a idiotic team of kids who is trying to make a fire in the midst of being surrounded by the Northmen. And uh, Calder wakes up to Scale telling him he's going to have to fight. So our different points of view are all kind of like mirrored as the day is starting. And Beck becomes stuck in a house in Osrung, which is the village that they're protecting. It's like a large village, small city type place. This is going to be bad for him because... Mead uh, is ignoring uh, Finry's concern of, of committing too hard, and the armies are all going to kind of converge 
at Ostrung. So the regiment that Meade is leading, that Finnery has is a part of, is surprised by the stranger come knocking guys, the giant guys that are coming out of the forest unexpectedly. They kind of uh, take them from behind. And while that's happening, Gost is watching Mitterick fail to take the bridge. And you have Baez who brings out his cannons finally. I think he calls them like death tubes or something like that. Yeah, death six, something death along six those maybe. Lines. Um, so he blows up these cannons, which inflict a lot of damage, but it's also mostly friendly fire. Mm-hmm. Da- one one notable death is that Dao's second split foot gets his head lopped off by a cannon blast. But uh, friendly fire is definitely something that happens quite a bit in this book. And sometimes it's completely indiscriminate, like Gost is getting into a battle rage and he's just killing people and he's like, oh, is that guy Union? I don't know. Yeah, super bloodthirsty. What did you think of the cannons? I thought that was kind of an interesting moment. Yeah, I mean, I it took me a little bit to realize what they were. You're like, what what is this thing that Baez is up to? Is this some sort of magic that will appear or some like play a role in this battle? But I I caught on. Uh, I guess after that, you catch on pretty quickly once you learn like they're loading in a huge metal ball and there there's like a huge explosion. But yeah, it, it certainly helps the Union. I think they helps them take that bridge that they were struggling against but then the cannon also explodes and kills a bunch of people around it including some of the engineers that were working on it and Baez could not care yeah Baez could not care less I always I always get that mixed up is it he couldn't care less or he could care less but it's he couldn't care less right he could not care less Right. He was at the maximum capacity for not caring. Is <laughs> yes. what you're saying. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say, yeah. Yes, that is definitely true. So Finry is taken prisoner by Stranger Come Knocking, the big giant dude, along with Elise Dan Brint. This is one of the darker moments because Elise is basically taken to, you know, her fate, which is not gonna be good amongst these savage giants. Finry is released by two Dao. Because Dao wants to, uh, he, he actually does want to sue for peace. At least that's what he tells Finry. And Finry leads off a bunch of prisoners uh, back to her father, Croy, with this message of peace. We'll see how that's going to go. This was a little surprising, actually, at this point. So uh, along in, in this attack, General Meade was killed as well. So one general down, two to go for uh, on the Union side. So then Finry comes to her father, to Croy, and finds Baez with him. So this is why the, the peace talk doesn't work. Because even though Croy might have been able to accept Dao's terms, Baez is like, no way, we're doing this, we're fighting. Because Baez reasons he needs to do the battle. Yeah, he's just like, let's just, let's just see where it goes. One more day. That's it. Right. He acts like it's no big deal. He could not care less once again. <laughs> Finry does continue to impress him. Um, she's trying to get her husband, Hal Dan Brock, to become the new bro- governor of England now that uh, Meade is no more. And it seems like this might actually work out well for Finry at this point, although we don't have any uh, solid answers. Let's go over to Beck. So Beck is trapped in Osrong in the midst of all this fighting. The Union is taking uh, the city and he is stuck in a house. He's terrified. He's locked up. And... Eventually, he gets his nerve up and he jumps out because he thinks the Union are in his house about to fight him. And he kills a dude, but he realizes that it's actually 
his buddy Reft. Reft has actually killed several Union and is the real hero, but Beck jumps out of the closet that he's been hiding in, kills his friend by mistake, he survives the battle, he's picked up by his northern friends, and they're like, wow, you kill all these guys because you see the bodies. Beck is so shocked, he can't even say anything. He earns himself a name through all this action, so now he's, he's Red Beck, he's a named man of the North, and he's totally drenched in his friend's blood. And this is another kind of sad reality of the heroes and, and this idea that, oh, Beck's a hero, but in reality, he hasn't done anything heroic. All he's done is like try to survive, and through this terrible mistake, he has become a named man and killed his ally. So uh, this is another really strong moment for this theme, right? I think at this point, he, Beck, has had the rudest of awakenings as to what war is. And he's not only horrified with it, but kind of been praised for his actions, which weren't his actual actions. And now he's, you know, paraded along by the Northmen as a named man. He's he's the next best thing, you know, and it's, I guess, Beck is just kind of suffering inside from this point on. Yeah, you feel bad for him. You feel bad for a lot of people in this book, but Beck especially. Yeah. So he gets uh, appointed to join in with Kra's group. Kra is now Black Dow's second because Splitfoot died from the cannon fire. So Kra reluctantly accepts it because he really doesn't have a choice. When Black Dow wants you to do something, you pretty much do it. And his dozen is left over to his second in command, Wonderful. Funny name as well. And so that's kind of the new dozen underneath her. So later that night, kind of after the battle, has the fighting has been done for the second day. So Calder gets into a fight with Tenways. Kraw is kind of trying to keep the peace. Calder is is in this kind of precarious position because he suggests that Kraw should kill Black Dow now that he's close to him. And they have a relationship since their, their early days. I think Kra was a part of uh, Calder's childhood, but Calder has so much, or Kra has so much honor that he can't do this. First of all, he can't kill Black Dow, and he also can't let this go without telling Black Dow that Calder is trying to kill him. But what he can do is say, "I'll give you a day to run away." And so we're going to see how this ends up. We like both these characters. We don't. I, I mean, we kind of like Black Dow too. We don't like Black Dow necessarily because we think that he's killed Logan Nine Fingers, even though Logan Nine Fingers' fate is still really. It was not resolved at the end of the first trilogy, and he's just kind of like this um, th- this aberration almost in the North. He's like this legend. Uh, he's probably dead, is my opinion, but I don't really know yet after reading the book. I don't know if you know anymore, Ryan, because you've already read Red Country, but I think it's interesting how we dislike a lot of these characters. We dislike Black Dow for killing Logan or maybe killing Logan. We dislike Cal- Calder for killing Folly, the weakest. Uh, Kral we pretty much like, but we also like them for other reasons, so... They all have their positive and negatives here, these Northmen. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Black Dow. And I think pretty much most characters in this book aren't what you expect them to be. And Black Dow is known for being a very bloodthirsty, fierce person who doesn't really have any apprehension killing people or women or children. And this book sort of paints him in a more sympathetic light. Whereas even though you learn at the beginning of the book, Calder was, he was sort of scheming against Black Dow, trying to become king and Black Dow, rather than just killing him, puts him in 
basically puts him under house arrest with his wife. Then he lets him go later on. And then he lets Finry go and actually tries to sue for peace. The whole time I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what's this isn't like Black Dow. He's got he's got something going on, but I guess I'll wait to finish my thought on Black Dow until we get to the end of the book. But he's a little bit more of a sympathetic character than I expected. Yeah, he actually seems to be a pretty decent king of the Northmen. Yeah. So the one other piece of action that happens in the second day, maybe rewind a little bit into Calder's storyline. So Calder and Scale, his brother, get into this fight that's primarily against Goss's group. So I, I think this is General Mitterick at this point. It must be because Jalen Horm is out of the, is out of the uh, action in the second day. So Scale gets into a bit of a pickle and they're fighting on the bridge against Mitterick's people. And then Gost comes in and he kind of turns the tide of the fighting and he kills Scale, or so we believe. He kill, he knocks off one of his arms and then kind of oppressive battle leads everyone away. And so the Union is triumphant on the second day in this portion of the fighting. And Calder is very upset because he had been starting to build up this relationship with Scale a little bit. They've kind of got a love-hate thing. Scale is just kind of a dumb goof to uh, steal our, our first law subreddit moderator's words for uh, for scale but they have a nice brother relationship even though they're nothing alike they seem to have some genuine affection for each other and now scale is dead and calder is upset because he feels that tenway uh, ten ways did not did not do his part in the fight so this is the second half did you think scale was dead by the way i thought he was yeah i definitely thought he was dead but some of the important repercussions, at least from this battle, is that I think Calder is putting the blame on Tenways a little bit because he himself didn't go to the aid of Scale, which he receives that note, which informs them of a flanking maneuver. So he kind of has an excuse not to go, but he was he sort of hesitated when a typical Northman would, I guess, boldly go to the aid of their their allies and. So I think he blames himself a little bit for that, as well as now he's he's the chief of a lot of, of Scale's old men, and he isn't really worthy of their respect. Yeah, Calder definitely kind of messes it up. That's a good point. I think he, he is blaming Tenways for his own issues here because he's hesitating. And as we know, he who hesitates is lost. I think that's a quote from... Uh, what is that from? I think it's from... Uh, Series of unfortunate events. That's a deep cut. Anyway, let's go to day three. So let's talk through this kind of in terms of uh, character point of views. So sticking up with Calder. So Calder, in the middle of the night of day two, has gone and stolen the Union standard, so the the flag, right? Which Mm -hmm. is an issue for for, uh, Mitterick's group. Mitterick really likes cavalry. And so in order to get back at the pesky Northman, Mitterick is going to order a cavalry charge, ASAP. Even though there's bad light and the morning is just dawning and people are telling him not to do it, we're going to do it. So we, we charge our cavalry through. But obviously, Calder is smarter than that, and he's dug a bunch of trenches around, and all the horses fall, and the Northmen are win this, this skirmish. This is going to go solidly on the north side. We should have like a scoreboard for, for North versus Union. Yeah. They, they they each have their moments. 
But this is a Northman victory here. And Collar's actually saved in this battle by Tenways, who sends his men to help out in this fighting. So Tenways, we're a little unsure exactly what's going on here because it seems like this would have been a good chance for Tenways to let Calder die if that was really what he wanted to have happen. So later that day, with uh, with Calder's point of view, so at this point, we've negotiated the peace. There's some other fighting that has to happen first, but from Calder's point of view, the next thing that has happened is the peace is negotiated and the North is sitting around and a fight breaks out between Calder and Dow. And finally, Calder is going to take his, his brother Scales approach and he challenges Dow to a duel because he's tired of pretending that he's not angry at Dow. And this seems like a way bad move, right? Well, Craw tells Dow that Calder asked him to kill him. Yeah, that's how the the fight starts, right? Yeah, so that that's that's why. And then and then um, Dow kind of gives Calder the option of how are you? How do you want to die? And so Dow is thinking of all the ways that he could die, and then he finally just decides, I'm going to challenge you to a duel. Which Black Dow is one of the best fighters the north has probably yeah this seems like a no-brainer calder's gonna lose black dow's gonna win but at the same time you're like calder's not gonna like his storyline needs more than this he's not just gonna lose the duel and die so what did you think about kind of the lead to the duel like did you have similar thoughts oh yeah totally i thought it was so blatantly obvious that calder wouldn't die because everybody just talks about how Calder has absolutely no chances against Black Dow. And even during the duel, Black Dow is just toying with Calder. The whole time I'm thinking, this is obviously going to go in Calder's favor. I don't know how exactly, but I know that Calder isn't going to die. And I thought that it was just very obvious based on how in favor it was of Calder. I mean, sorry, in favor of Black Dow. Right. And so, and, and I agree. I, I've had similar feelings. Ultimately, the way that Calder wins was he's able to get Shivers involved and Shivers just uh, jumps in and splits Black Dow's head open with his axe, right? Yeah. And Black Dow's dead. This is not something that we normally allow in a Northern duel, but at the same time, who's going to mess with Shivers? So everyone's kind of uncertain what to do. Calder takes this opportunity to kill Tenways because no one knows what to do. So might as well uh, take out this dude who I think has been wanting to kill me. This turns out to maybe be a little misguided because it wasn't actually 10 ways, but maybe a, a good move to seize power in this moment. Stranger come knocking, the largest, most ferocious guy around says, okay, we're going to respect Calder. Give him a new name, Black Dow. Black Calder. Or yeah, Black Calder. This is funny because uh, I think the way that Abercrombie described this was we weren't sure if Stranger came knocking, realized what the black meant. Like, did he just think that every leader had black in front of their name? Or did he yeah. think it was actually accurate? But he said black collar, so we're going to black collar because no one wants to mess with SCK. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started I started to think that maybe Shivers would betray Black Dow because I think at some point right before the duel... Black Dow calls Shivers his dog, and he's like, oh, you think my dog would, would do that? And mm -hmm. it bothers Shivers, and you could see that. And I think it just makes up Shivers' mind that right. I'm not anybody's dog. And that's what he says after he kill, he stabs Black Dow in the back. He says, I'm not anybody's dog. Right. As you were talking through that, 
Shivers reminds me a lot of the Hound from Song of Ice and Fire. Do you get that at all? I didn't think about that until now, but now that you say it, I I kind of agree. He has like a, a strange sense of honor. Doesn't really have any doesn't have any hesitation towards uh, killing people, but he does the right thing sometimes. And maybe it was just because you're saying dog and hound, but I think they're pretty similar characters, actually. And both are pretty compelling. And they both have mangled faces. (laughs) Right. Okay. We could probably talk to you more, but let's not do spoilers for Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that's a good comparison. I mean, the hound in Song of Ice and Fire has fire on his face. Yeah, yeah. That's not a spoiler, but I think there's specific plot points we could say about each that makes sense more. So... Continuing with Calder's storyline, now that he's become Black Calder and the de facto leader of the Northmen, he represents the North in the peace talks that are happening, and he's not going to be nearly as nice as Black Dow in the peace talks. He comes in and he's like, no way, Baez, we're not agreeing with these terms. We know you guys are in a bad situation because you've got the Gurkish and you've got Monza Mercato uh, that you have to fight over in Styria. So that's not going to fly. We need things to work out better for us. And they don't really reach an agreement quite yet. There's another scene that happens, probably one of, the, one of the top scenes from the book that happens during this time, where we have a meetup between, b- between Shivers and Gosh, right? At the end of these peace talks. And this has been alluded to so much from the Bremer and Gosh side, and not at all from the Shivers side, because Shivers doesn't remember this at all. But this is like the defining moment in this dude's life recently. Yeah. And he comes face to face with the guy who really did it for him, who, who messed everything up. And he looks at him and he's like, you look familiar. And you're starting answers to the reader. You're like, oh, man, like this is going to happen. These guys are going to fight. Everything's going to get messed up again. And I think Shivers, Shivers actually realizes who he is, right? Towards the end, first, he doesn't realize that he's like, oh, yeah, this is the dude that I pushed down the stairs in Sapani. And he just denies it because he's like, whatever, I don't care about you. Yeah, he's like, eh, it's not really worth fighting this guy. Yeah. What does he say at the end? He says, uh, Cardotti's never heard of it or something like that. Yeah. Just kind of like, not not any way how you thought that would go down. After all of the thought that Gorst put into this single, this event and Shivers being in this book, I just figured there was going to be some sort of epic showdown between these two guys who are just, they're just super bloodthirsty, fierce people. I've been saying that a lot, bloodthirsty and fierce, but anyways, and then at the end, you you finally think that this, this duel is coming, this fight to the death and Shivers just diffuses it in one sentence and walks away and Gorse is kind of left like stunned. Yeah, there are a lot of things that Abercrombie really builds up throughout this book. I think the Shivers killing Black Dow because of the dog thing was really hinted out throughout throughout the book and had a really nice payoff. I was fine with this not turning into anything because I think it is a payoff in a different way because it really defines these characters. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I didn't think either of them would have died in this book. And so... I guess this is just kind of one way for that to happen. So the peace talks are over for now. We're not really sure exactly what's going to happen. That night, Calder gets kind of tricked into meeting up with Baez. And he gets into this bizarre conversation with Baez and Yoru Sulfur, who is Baez's uh, assistant type guy, his assistant mage. And they're just sitting there dining in the midst of these pits filled with bodies. And Calder is terrified 
because this is just this bizarre situation and Baez holds all of the power and Baez makes it very clear that he's tired of these threats from Calder and Calder is going to accept the union's terms or else. No more of this nonsense, Calder. I'm the one in charge. Knock it off. And that's what happens. Calder, I mean... You, you like Collar because he's super clever, but he's not perfect by any means. Like he's also, mm-hmm. he makes a lot of mistakes. Another Game of Thrones comparison, Calder reminds me of Tyrion a little bit. Yeah, Kind definitely. of like these outcast characters, youngest sons who are very clever, but are not perfect either. And this is an important point in the book because you learn about how Baez has been pulling the strings on both sides of this battle. He had... Those two guys, I forget their names, but they were the ones that saved Calder from the assassination at the beginning of the book. Yeah, Deep and Shallow are their names. Deep and Shallow, yeah, okay. And then um, at the end, he Stranger Come Knocking was always under listening to Baez, and I think he is the one that suggested that Calder become king or something along those lines at the end of the duel. And uh-huh. I think Ten Ways also was under Baez. He, Ten Ways ended up saving Calder in that battle because Baez told him to. And so you learn about all of these strings that Baez has been pulling. And now he's finally getting what he wants at the end of the book. And this has a lot of callbacks to the end of Last Argument of Kings when Baez and Glockta have a nice conversation over a squares board. And Glockta realizes who's really been in charge the whole time. So I thought very similar setup here. Nicely done. Baez doesn't quite get everything he wants, though, because he gives Calder a gift. His brother Scale, who's alive, shock. And Baez expects Calder to kill him. Pretty much. He's like, okay, kill Scale, become the king. Good. That's exactly what I want. But instead, instead, Calder realizes that he really does have this real fondness for his brother, And also, maybe he doesn't really want to be the king with the target on his back. And so he gives Scale the pendant with the huge diamond on it. And he says, okay, Scale, you're the king. I'll be kind of your right-hand man. man." And uh, it looks like it's going to work out pretty well for Calder and Scale, at least for this book, as far as I know. I mean, there is some doubt as to how Calder and Scale actually, or how Scale actually feels towards Calder. I mean, sorry, I got that backwards. There's some doubt as to how Calder feels towards Scale because he ridicules Scale a bit in his mind of how he's kind of a dumb brute who just uh, focuses on being violent and battles, and that's sort of all he values. And Shiver says, you know, just just give me a signal and I'll kill him. And Calder just thinks so much about it, but ultimately he determines that he loves his brother and he wants him... He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to betray him. And even if that means that Scale will become king. And so that's uh, a part that made me like Calder a bit more is how he treats his brother there. One one thing, back going back to Baez, though, which is in this, in this scene, a lot of people use that as evidence to the fact that Baez is sitting there eating meat. They use that as evidence to point to the fact that Baez might possibly be an eater at this point. He had no qualms breaking the first law and communicating with the other side. So why would he have any qualms breaking the second law? And here he is eating with like this pile of all these dead bodies nearby. 
could it be human meat? It's definitely possible. Yeah, that's a good theory. We don't really get into the lore at all in the standalones, but back to the original trilogy, this was a big deal. The first law and the second law, not killing yeah. with demons and not eating the flesh of men and what the eaters are and all those things. So yeah, that's not really something I've thought about for a couple books. Yeah, I, I mean, I that's it, not my... I wish I could say it was my original thought, but I ended up reading about it after I finished. And so I think that's um, a useful information, a useful piece of information for anybody who is, you know, an avid fan might lead uh, credence to that, that theory. Okay. So a few loose ends to tie up. I mean, we've kind of talked through the plot, but we haven't got through all of our POV characters yet. So Tunny, at the beginning of the third day, they were bogged down for lack of better word. Uh, with the with the Northmen surrounding them, and they're ordered to charge ultimately as part of the Union attack. And finally, we see Tunney's really like passionate, patriotic side, and he's doing this heroic charge, and he unfurls the standard, and he runs towards the enemy force, and there's no one there because the Northmen have just set up some dummies there to keep the, the Union occupied while they go off into the real battle. This is kind of a, a very another very ironic moment, and Tunny feels kind of ashamed and a little um, idiotic here afterwards. And his men make fun of him, and then finally the fighting for Tunny is over, and he's looking to go back to uh, to Mitterland. But unfortunately, they are sent off to another battle to Westport because they need to help the uh, the Sepanese allies fighting uh, fighting the Snake of Talons from Bester of Cold. So what do you kind of think of like Tunney's last uh, act here? It was a little bit funny. You know, when he finally does something, it, it turns out to be just he was charging a battlement of just dummies at straw. Was it just people stuffed with straw or clothes stuffed with straw, something like that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then he also has the chance to end the fighting, doesn't he? Does he have a chance to go home or do they just tell him, you know, what, we're going to Westport now? From what I remember, he's just ordered off to his next assignment in Westport. Oh, okay. So he didn't actually have a good chance to, to stop the soldier's life. And there's one more scene where him and his last surviving recruit from a few days ago are getting getting acquainted with their new batch of recruits. And the new batch of recruits look to this one guy who survived. Can't remember his name exactly. He might be Kilge. Can't remember. But they look to this guy and he's like, wow, you know, this dude's seen it all. And as a reader, you're like three days ago, this guy was totally yeah. green. And so, and you got to get the same thing with Redback as well. Raw recruits that really uh, have their eyes open very quickly. Mm -hmm. So our next POV that we haven't really wrapped up and this, I guess talks about some of the climax that we skipped over, but um, so Gost is part of the climactic fighting on top of the heroes. So he's leading the union charge up the heroes along with Jalen Horm and he's killing left and right indiscriminately he finally gets into this this matchup with Weirin, who is one of Kra's dozen that we really like. We've always liked him throughout the book. And they fight for a while, and Gost is kind of surprised by how well Weirin is able to uh, toss this huge father of swords around. And we're not really sure who's going to win, but we don't. We probably don't think that Gost is going to die. We, you're a little worried that Weirin's going to get it, and he does. All of a sudden, the spear just sticks him right in the side, and he dies. And that's the end of the duel. And once again, you kind of get this idea of like a good guy just dies for no reason. Really, Gost wins the duel and the fighting kind of continues. Uh, what do you think of that duel, Ryan? Yeah, I, 
Weirin is kind of the, this almost mythical store, mythical hero with his father of swords, and everybody knows how crazy good of a fighter he is. And maybe he's the closest thing you get to a hero in these in this book. And he does not get a heroic death, that's for sure. He just dies from a spear to the side. It's a slow death, and ultimately he's buried on top of the heroes along with his sword. Traditionally, the sword had been passed along, but he's like, the sword is a curse. We're going to bury it. Seems like he's one of the old guard. It really kind of gets, you know, he gets the, the, the terrible nature of war. And one thing that I really liked about Weirin's ending is that for most of the book, he's all, he's always using this excuse or joking about how he had his fate told to him by a witch who told him the day and place that he would die. And it's not today. So he would always tell people or imply, if I'm not going to die, then you're going to be the one who dies. And at mm-hmm. the end, he's like, that witch lied to me because that wasn't what she told him. So yeah. it's just another... Uh, funny moment you know so the uh, the assault is halted here by the union because um, there's all these explosions that happen in Osrung. there's these plumes of smoke that are coming over the union ranks they're forced back this is Ishri's doing we're not sure if it was because of a bunch of like gurkish explosives that we've seen in previous book or if it was her magic that's kind of unresolved it's kind of a mirror to Baez's cannons as well both sides of the main rivalry and finally, with Ghost, he goes back and he meets up with Finry, and they're looking for Finry's wife. <laughs> they're looking for Finry's husband, uh, Hall Van Brock. And Ghost finds him, and there is this really dark moment where he has the ability to kill Hal and make it look like he had just died. And then it would work out great for him because then Finry would be his for the taking, right? Which is what he's always really passionately desired. And he's mm-hmm. legitimately about to kill Hal, this wounded, unconscious dude. And then Finry sees him at the last moment, and he bl- he plays it off as if he's saving his life. So I, throughout the book, was kind of like on Team Gost a little bit. Like I liked his inner dialogue. He seemed like a pretty uh, pitiable character who had a good storyline. And then towards the end, he gets way dark, and you're like, okay, this guy's a little too messed up. Yeah, that scene, you, you kind of get a sense of how... His values, I guess, you know, how he's willing to kill a man just to get, I guess, to try and get in the good graces of this woman. And so you certainly lose a lot of the sense of respect or desire for him to do well, I think, at the end of the book. Yeah, it's a total King David move, right? Yeah, I didn't <laughs> think about that, but yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. is. I wonder if that inspired this storyline at all. But yeah, it's a total uh, David and, uh, and Bathsheba move there. So Goss storyline, we're pretty much wrapped up here. We get Gosta being reinstated as a knight of the body, which is what he's always wanted. But it's not quite enough. He still wants Finry, so he goes to Finry and he admits out that he admits, he admits to her that he loves her and that he should be the man for her. And also starts like babbling on about war and how he's never really been comfortable anywhere except for fighting. And this is not going to work out because Finnery is not accepting it. She's, she says that she, she just calls him a monster, says that he loves fighting way too much. He's bloodthirsty, says that there's ways that he could have got into society in different ways other than indiscriminately killing. And pretty tragic end. 
to the book for Gost and that he got everything that he wanted except for Finry, obviously. But, you know, he got to be back to his old position. But at the end, he's just unhappy and he's very much doubting what he's even doing in life. Well, he tries to play the pity card with Finry. That I, he says something along the lines of like, I never would have been good enough for you or you never would have had me. And uh, yeah, and then he starts rambling and Finry just stops him at the end and really calls out his true nature. And it's sort of a rude awakening for Gorst at that point, because as heroic as he may seem, she just tells him how it is. He's just bloodthirsty maniac, doesn't really care about other people and just himself he's a very selfish person Finry's a great character she's kind of the uh the union foil to calder on the other side very clever not exactly perfect but um it, the book also ends up well for her with her husband getting the position of governor of angland which is what she was petitioning bias for so she's been clever enough to get the attention and favor of the first of the magi which is not something that Many get her father, Croy, resigns because Baez is unhappy with him. But I mean, that seems to be the best for him as well. You got to get out of the Union yeah. Army at all costs. It's a terrible place to be. I mean, both Calder and Finry make a deal with the devil, with Baez. They, they ultimately get what they want or close to what they want. In Calder's case, not he's not the king, but they have to do that last very unsavory thing of allying themselves with Baez to get there. Yeah, now that we talk more and more about it, I realize how much of mirror characters they are to each other. I think throughout this book, on the Union side and North side, just the mirror, the symbolism that happens is really well done. Mm-hmm. So that's Finry's storyline. She ends up happy, which is not something that many characters in a First Law book are going to have. So hopefully that's okay for her in the next books too. Well, does she really end up happy though? Because I guess the, the her ending scene, she's she's talking or she's thinking about her husband, and as she's kind of said in her mind a few times, what's love? She she has a warped perspective of what love is, in that she can change her husband to be what she what she loves and what she values in somebody rather than accepting him for who he is and loving him, which is, um, you know, maybe she's found some happiness at this point in the book, but I think it's going to end up miserable for her later. So it's happy question mark, we'll say at the end of this book. So just a couple more characters on the North side and we'll call it a wrap. So Kra, Kra is part of the biggest soul on top of the heroes. He's injured for a while. He, also has some heroic actions here. He kills the man in shining armor that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast. This is Jalen Horm, who is trying to kind of reclaim his armor, but Kra kills him pretty easily because he's not really that great of a warrior, even though he's got the the cool armor. So he's injured by uh, by Gost, but uh, Beck keeps him safe. So Beck also kind of has some real heroic moments here, and he sees Weirin die in his arms. And at this point. Um, he's pretty much done with fighting. He's like enough already. He resigns from Dao's second in command and he wants to retire. He's kind of thought about retiring through the whole book. And so he retires and he goes to become a woodworker, a carpenter. And it's not going well because a few months later, he's like trying to carpent this stuff and it's it's not nearly what he thought it would be. And he mm-hmm. thinks back to 
you know, how he had a purpose in the army and how great those days were. And just a few months removed, you can see once again, the, the lore of battle comes back and, and the beauty of it. And your mind is like, oh, that, that was so much better than it, than it really is. And Hardbread, his old frenemy, comes back and says, hey, Dow, why don't you come join this war again that's happening between, uh, between Scale and Glam and Golden? So there's been some additional conflict that's happened off screen. Uh, I guess Golden killed Kal Ricci, but it really seems like maybe uh, Calder might have set that up because Kal Ricci was the one that really wanted Calder dead. Anyway, th- this is all in the background. I'm assuming we'll get more of this maybe in Red Country or the next trilogy. But ultimately, Kra is going back to war and his plot line comes a full circle. I think out of everybody, out of all the characters, the one person who has a somewhat, or I guess the happiest ending would probably be Beck in that he, he sees war in all of its ugly glory and decides it's not for him. And he returns back home to work the farm with his mom and his brother and so even though he has some scars probably some ptsd at least he gotten he realized what's more important and it's not war yeah some severe ptsd i think it was very interesting to see the fighting through his eyes a lot of the events you saw through his eyes i think the duel was through beck's perspective even but yeah he has a nice ending as well you hope that it works out for him you get a sense that it probably will. He'll probably be, you know, grow up to be a respectable Northman who who teaches his sons about, you know, the, the ugliness of war and probably has some issues there in the Northern society and whatnot. But ultimately, in this book at least, Beck has, it's worked out somewhat, I don't know, better yeah. than most. So that's a wrap for the heroes. Let's do a quick uh, worst of the best moments. Uh, so these are moments for from each of us where moments are really cool that we liked quite a bit, but maybe there was one thing that was left lacking a little bit and was the worst part of the otherwise best part. So do you have one, Ryan? Yeah, I'm going to have to go with um, Black Dow as a character. Like I mentioned earlier, he is significantly more sympathetic in this book than you see him in the first trilogy. And that he... He makes a lot of decisions. He's grown a lot. And at the end of the book, he's talking with Kerndon Craw. And they're both talking about their past before they were warriors or soldiers. And Craw mentions how he is a carpenter. And Black Dow mentions that he was a potter. And I think he says something along the lines of pretty much everybody has a point where they get tired of battle. And then he goes and dies. And I think he had some potential for more growth. And I was interested in seeing where Black Dow might have gone after that. But in true grimdark fashion, we will never see that. That's a good moment. I know Black Dow is a pretty popular character in the fandom. And yeah, maybe he could have gone a little bit further. But ultimately, he was snuffed out. Mm -hmm. So my moment is the cannons. The death tubes, I think is what we call them. So I just wanted more here. And I feel like this fits into the story and was fine for, you know, the the narrative. But as a reader, I was hoping for more because of the beginning. You get hints of, oh, Bias has got this new thing. He's got this new magic. And I'm thinking, ooh, cool, magic, right? New thing coming to the storyline. This is going to be really cool. This is going to be a central plot element. 
It's going to maybe like turn the tides of the battle in a cool way. I guess I'm thinking more of like, this is what would happen in a Sanderson book. You get a hint yeah. at the beginning and then later on you're like, oh my gosh, this is the thing. And so I was thinking this would be the thing and it wasn't the thing. It was just a, like a small moment that happened in the middle of the book where you see the cannons unveiled and they blow up and that was it. So it fits into what the heroes is, but I, as a reader, was maybe hoping for a little bit more and didn't get it. So it's the worst of the best from my perspective, but I think it does fit into the book. Well, you may or may not see cannons further on down the road. I bet you will. And I like that it was advancing the technology. I think that's cool when you see books kind of like over the years advance along in that way. Yeah. But in this book, I was hoping, I don't know, first experiment, right? Like it didn't go very well, but it sounds mm -hmm. like it's going to be more important later on. Mm -hmm. I guess the last thing that I want to say is that I touched on this in the beginning. This book is titled The Heroes, and pretty much every single person who you think might be a hero in this book ends up one way or the other, not dying or dying in an unheroic way or showing significant flaws that would not be in your ideological hero. You wouldn't have those flaws. And so the only real heroes we see in the books are those statues that are on the hill. Yeah, I think in that way, it really is, is very cool. Just the, the symbolism that Abercrombie weaves in. I will say I thought there were some heroic moments, individual moments of heroism that happened. But then like you say, you do see significant shortcomings in those characters as well. So the question yeah. is, what is a hero really? And I don't know if Abercrombie really answers that in the book. I guess my answer is that a hero is someone who's just trying to do their best and despite shortcomings, mm -hmm. has moments of courage and, and heroism. Yeah. All right. So that's a wrap for the heroes. Thanks for listening. If you like our channel, check us out at Pentology Books, www.pentologybooks.com is our website with all of our links and whatnot. We've covered a lot of different series, so check that out. And if you like what we're doing, uh, join our Discord and chat with us. Tell us what we did wrong. Tell us what you like. Tell us what series you'd like for us to cover. And check us out on Patreon where we have a few bonuses. So thanks, Ryan. Your camera yeah. didn't fall over once. Fantastic work. That is true. It, it was a lucky day. All right, see you later. Have a good one.